and welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sandlind and Talking Migration is supported by the Centre for Research in the Social Sciences at the University of Huddersfield and the Migration Research Group at the University of Sheffield. In this episode, we'll be talking about migration and welfare, is there a conflict? And about a new book on refugees in Africa. During a conference on migration and welfare in the Swedish city of Malmö, I took the opportunity to speak to the conference organiser, Dr Andreas Bau, who is Associated Professor in Economics at Lund University, as well as the Research Institute of Industrial Economics in Stockholm, Sweden. And I also spoke to Professor Keith Banton, who is Queen's Research Chair in Public Policy and a Professor in the Department of Political Studies and the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University in Canada. They have both written extensively on the welfare state and the question of the day is whether the welfare state is somehow threatened by immigration. As the conference, which had been discussing this question over three days, was drawing to an end, I asked Keith and Andreas if they could tell me why they're interested in the immigration welfare question and what they have found in their research. You'll first hear from Professor Keith Banton. Well, thank you for uh, uh, inviting me to take part in this uh, podcast. So why am I interested in issues of immigration, diversity, and solidarity? Um, I think it's partly because clearly if you read the headlines, if you look at the debates, not just, not even primarily in Canada, but across Western nations, how we cope, how nations cope with higher levels of ethnic diversity, higher levels of immigration, higher levels of religious diversity has to be one of the big challenges facing democracies in the contemporary era. And uh, my research interests have always been driven, in part at least by the public agenda, uh, not just by theoretical puzzles in the literature. So I think it, it, it's kind of reading the headlines. You, you, you need to engage in contemporary life as an academic and so that's why I've been interested in these questions. In the Canadian case um, the issues are not as compelling as they are in Europe that is to say that the country seems to have a higher level of consensus around these issues um, and so I, I tend to uh, travel to Europe a lot and that has uh, additional advantages. It's, a, it's fun to visit European cities. Is that similar to why you're interested in these issues, Andreas? Um, not really. So my interest in this started or originated from my interest in, in the Swedish welfare state. Uh, and, and I was basically curious about how come Sweden and, and the Nordic countries to some extent have this tendency to develop large generous welfare states with high levels of regulations and high taxes uh, and other rich democracies uh, don't. Uh, and then I was interested in whether the Swedish system could survive and all the various challenges that it has been said to be subjected to. So there was globalization. People said the welfare state will now finally come to an end because we cannot have such high taxes in the globalized era. Then there was demography. People grew older and more expensive. And somehow the welfare state survived those challenges. But what we hear now a lot in Sweden 
is that uh, migration flows will finally put an end to the welfare state unless we put an end to migration flows. And, and that's what I'm thinking about at the moment. Is, is this conflict really true? And if so, how will the welfare state be affected by, by the current migration flows to Sweden? And more uh, specifically then for both of you, just briefly outline uh, how you're researching this or what you're looking at in terms of, uh, in terms of this conflict. Uh, maybe Keith first. Well, I work with a group um, which means that often uh, the technical aspects are done by other members of the group. Uh, but we as a group have been interested in two questions. One is the question that Andreas just alluded to, that is, is there some deep tension between levels of immigration and diversity on one hand and the strength of social programs, social solidarity, welfare states on the other? And we've done work which uh, tries to tackle that question using cross-national data. Uh, and we've joined what is now a large literature uh, with very mixed findings. So interpreting the findings is always fun now. That's been one of the questions. But the other question we've been engaged in uh, has had a more normative focus. Uh, one of our colleagues, Will Kimlicka, is a political philosopher and has has uh, <coughs> done a major, made major contributions to the debate about multiculturalism and citizenship and the implications of diversity for our understandings of citizenship in a liberal context. Um, and the that has led us into a debate about multiculturalism because there have been those who argue that although diversity itself may not erode uh, solidarity, uh, that a multicultural policy strategy will, by undermining the uh, political coalitions that supported social policy at the outset, by displacing interest in uh, uh, redistribution politics, by generating or contributing to the development of an agenda built around identity or around diversity, around ethnicity, and that in a sense you would uh, weaken the sources of uh, support for redistribution if you engage in a multicultural approach to diversity as opposed to some more integrative or assimilative approach to diversity. Uh, and so we started from a normative question or a normative argument and then said, well, this, there are empirical assumptions built into the debate about multiculturalism. Let's try and test those. So I've been involved in two types of questions. One is whether immigration and diversity erodes uh, social solidarity, but the other is whether the political approach of the state to diversity matters to a tension between uh, diversity and uh, welfare state or social solidarity. Does it make it worse? Does it mediate? Uh, does it exacerbate? Does it ease any kind of tension that exists? So those are the two questions we've been interested in. I guess in terms of the multiculturalism versus um, the welfare state, your answer is basically no. It doesn't make it worse. No, we don't find it uh, makes it worse. And um, so there are two answers we've given, depending on the, you know, the results of different studies. At a minimum, I think it, we consistently show that it does not exacerbate the tension. Uh, the really interesting question is whether it makes it 
better. That is, whether it eases attention. And there are, we've just done that survey in North America, looking at both Canadian and U.S. Uh, attitudes. And there, that evidence suggests that it actually eases the tension a little. And certainly the people who have a stronger belief or acceptance of multiculturalism tend also to have quite strong support for redistribution. Now, we will debate forever which way the causal arrows flow here. Uh, but uh, we are absolutely convinced that Brian Berry was wrong. <laughs> okay, uh, are you are you convinced in a similar way, or is the focus um, on your your research a bit different? I, I trust Keith completely when it comes to the assessment of Brian Berry, uh, <laughs> but that is not the expertise of of of, of mine. Um, I I am interested in whether um, the high degree of of, of refugee migrant inflows to Sweden is is a threat to the Swedish model and and which many would claim in Sweden today uh, and that lead me leads me to think about the concept Swedish model what is actually does that refer to mm. and, and and that is for sure opening a can of worms but to make it simple the Swedish model some would use to refer to a system with with uh, universal welfare benefits, high taxes, high degree of government involvement in most areas of life. Whereas others would use the Swedish model uh, to describe a certain set of labor market institutions uh, with, with high degree of union power, centralized wage bargaining, and a very complex wage distribution, where you actually decide that uh, companies that are trying to stay competitive by lowering wages, they should be forced out of business and then people should be educated so that they can take on more highly productive job. Uh, and that was the explicit plan in Sweden after World War II and it worked fairly well. Uh, but when, once you start thinking about it, you realize that this is probably the more problematic part about the Swedish model when it comes to migration, uh, because as a result of this solidaric wage process that we call it. Uh, we had a very compressed income structure, fairly high productivity, highly educated labor force. And this is very, very well for a homogeneous industrial society. But it, it makes it very problematic when there is refugee uh, immigration, uh, a substantial part of which is, is low-skilled migration to this economy. On the other hand, the welfare state uh, is highly robust uh, to migration, more than most people would think, because the expensive benefits are paid only to those who have actually not only put a foot on the labor market, but have actually established themselves on the labor market. Uh, so if people never get a job, they are not entitled to the expensive benefits, but will instead end up on the most cheap uh, social assistance benefits. Um, so I think while the welfare state is not the problem. The problem and the pressure will be put on the Swedish labor market model. That is that is my tentative conclusion. Mm. I guess, um, so you, you, you basically identify, I guess, slightly different sources of the conflict between migration and welfare, and we've been discussing this here now for three days, and, um, and it's not so straightforward exactly why there is maybe a tension between migration and welfare because you, you focus on the the uh, economic structures and, and I guess you focus more on the um, citizenship models and um, um, Keith and uh, identity um, 
um, different identities, national identity. And um, and I know, Andrea, so you also do some research on, on trust, on social trust, which is um, maybe slightly related to identity issues as well. So, so what do you see, both of you, as the sort of key source of this conflict? Is it fundamentally by economics, or is it about identity, or is it about um, um, both? No, I think in short run it's, it's mainly about economics and, and labor market institutions, but the conflict is different in various countries. I mean, Swedes tend to like immigration, but we don't want a flexible labor market. Britain, broadly speaking, is, is the opposite, right? So the conflict is very different. So I, I'm not sure you could say there's a one trade-off or one dilemma that holds in all countries, but it's, it's much more varied. And in the longer run, when it comes to trust, it might be that uh, all countries are subject to, to a similar challenge, uh, which is our tendency to trust people who are similar to us, and, and therefore our tendency to, to distrust people who are dissimilar, and thus the tendency for migration to lower trust. And I think that's a big challenge in the long run. Um, where I would like to stress that there is no clear uh, consensus in the research on, on how serious this effect might be, uh, how we can escape it. Um, I've dabbled a little bit with this. I've, I've examined the trust among uh, the highly trusting Swedes uh, when they move to countries that are uh, much less trusting and more corrupt uh, and so on. And what we know is that high trust is surprisingly sticky. Okay, so it's, it's almost like it's a personality trait. Once you learn that most people can be trusted, you tend to uh, stick with that for a long time. On the other hand, and this is a bit encouraging, when people move from low-trusting countries to high-trusting countries, you see clear signs that they increase their trust because they now know that, that the police is not corrupt, the legal system is more efficient, and so on. Uh, so those results provide uh, some degree, uh, some, some cause for optimism, actually. And Keith, how do you see see that particular source of conflict, the idea of trust, because I know you've got a forthcoming book as well on um, trust and solidarity primarily in, in diverse societies. Uh, first, the forthcoming book has some work in it on trust. Boo Rustin has a chapter which, uh, as always, it focuses considerably on trust. Um, <clears throat> we did work earlier in Canada on issues of trust. We, and social capital broadly defined. In effect, what we did in the Canadian context was took the Putnam questions and uh, conducted a survey in Canada where we replicated his questions and sought to see whether Canadians were hunkering down in the way in which he said was happening in the United States with people living in diverse neighborhoods. And we found quite different patterns in the Canadian case. It is true that uh, in uh, highly diverse areas, and we were looking at neighborhoods really, what we call a census tract, um, trust was lower in diverse neighborhoods. That effect disappeared totally if you control for the length of time people had lived there. And so we were finding that younger people, or people who moved into the neighborhood, uh, 
uh, clearly made a choice they would be comfortable in that neighborhood uh, and that the people who were having difficulty on the trust dimension were people who had lived in the neighborhood for a very long time and then who found that neighborhood changing around them and were uncomfortable with that so you know generational replacement may <laughs> handle some of that so, uh, and on the other dimensions of Bob Putnam's hunkering down phenomenon, we did not find them in Canada. We did not find that uh, uh, people living in diverse neighborhoods had lower levels of engagement in civic associations. We did not find lower levels, interestingly, in trusting government in diverse neighborhoods. We didn't find, now Bob wasn't interested in this question, but we didn't find lower levels of support for redistribution in diverse neighborhoods. So we drew two conclusions about that. One is these things vary a lot from country to country, and it's very important not to develop a master narrative about trust and diversity based on one country, uh, however important and uh, interesting that country is. Uh, these things vary with context. And the second, I guess, is that we developed a, and maybe this is, I'm just projecting being a Canadian, uh, we developed a kind of comfort level about the long-term implications of diversity. Uh, Canada has been a very diverse country for a long time. We've gone through a lot of tensions over time uh, between French and English Canadians, between uh, um, various uh, ethnic groups who have uh, immigrated to, country over the, to the country over the last century, and in, in, in the current period between uh, the rest of the population and the Aboriginal or Indigenous peoples. Uh, that's quite tense at the moment. But we have moved through these, and we have seen um, a relatively civil society and a relatively stable society, prosperous. Uh, it's, it, we don't face the tensions on the welfare state side the way Sweden does. I actually think Sweden's a really interesting test case for the solidarity, diversity and solidarity debate, because Canada has a liberal welfare state. It doesn't spend nearly as much on these issues, but I think so it's not a good test case of the progressive's dilemma, uh, or as good a t uh, test case of the progressive's dilemma as it is for some countries which actually are more progressive. Uh, but I think on the other dimensions, on a kind of civic society, on a politically integrated society, um, we, I tend to draw a little bit of comfort from the country I live in and the experience I have day to day. Mm, we're running out of time, but maybe on that, because uh, it's quite a positive uh, quite positive lessons in a way from Canada, especially when you read your uh, research as well. So I think people used to want to be like Sweden, but maybe Andreas, finally, should we all just be like Canada instead? I, I think there is something fundamentally wrong with that question, because <laughs> even if, if a country wants to, they cannot become another country, because another country became that country through a series uh, of, of decisions, some of which were completely unintended, some have uh, unforeseen results, uh, and so on. Uh, so I think this looking to other countries is sort of a wishful thinking, where you tend to idealize the situation in some countries. Uh, now some look to Sweden, then I, I like to remind them that only 25 years ago, Sweden was in a situation similar to Greece. Uh, where people would point to us and say, this is proof that that solidarity and welfare state is going down the drain because now it doesn't even work in Sweden and that was only 25 years ago so you should be very careful with this um, success story hunting. Yeah I agree with that there was a period in which Canadians would um, uh, go about 
sort of saying that we have the magic formula, we know how to make this work, um, and that we would be a bit preachy uh, and smug about these issues. I think that's uh, two, two things. Uh, first, that was never right, because the Canadian model clearly reflected a particular and somewhat unusual set of circumstances, which uh, provided for uh, what looked like a pretty successful integration strategy. Uh, so it was always distinct. Uh, couldn't be exported easily. And in the contemporary period, we're actually having more problems. Um, we have a very uh, strong flow of uh, high-skilled uh, immigration, and we're finding it very difficult to integrate those people. And indeed, it's harder to integrate sometimes highly skilled professional people into the labor market than lower skilled people. The people who came in the post-war era in Canada uh, were tradespeople, bricklayers and uh, people with those sorts of uh, trades and skills, they integrated quite easily, but for highly skilled professionals, language skills, particularly professional language skills and an understanding of the culture of the professional world is proving tougher, tougher than we had thought. So there, there are all these anecdotes about, you know, sort of doctors, immigrant doctors driving taxi cabs. And the joke in Toronto is that, um, if you have an accident, don't call the ambulance, call a taxi, because you're more likely to get health care quickly that way. It's a apocryphal story. It's not true in the main. But we, you know, so the Canadian model is not, um, Canada's having a bit of a uh, crisis of doubt about its model and is uh, experimenting and groping its way to a, a different kind of model, I think. To find out more about the work of Keith Bunting and Andreas Bay, please visit our website talkingmigration.com. Now on to our next topic. Dr. Lucy Hoville is a senior researcher at the International Refugee Rights Initiative, and she has 16 years of experience conducting research among displaced and conflict-affected groups in East and Central Africa. In her new book, Refugees, Conflict and the Search for Belonging, she focuses on refugees across the Great Lakes region in Africa. I first asked Lucy to tell us a bit about the book and the research that she undertook for it. Great, thanks. Yes, um, the book itself is based on about seven years of empirical research that I carried out in Africa's Great Lakes region. So the countries we did research in were Rwanda, Democratic Republic of Congo, Uganda, South Sudan, Sudan, Tanzania and Burundi, um, all with groups who were either at that point displaced or who had tried to return back to the country that they had been displaced from. And I carried this out um, under uh, as part of my work with the International Refugee Rights Initiative. So in total, we conducted over a thousand one-on-one um, -on -one interviews. And really, the intention of the book was to bring all of this empirical data into one, one space. Um, a, a lot of the individual case studies were published as working papers, but it was really to look at some of the cross-cutting issues that had come through the research. And the way in which I organised the book was really to bring together two problems, if you like, into one space. First, the ongoing realities of conflict and forced migration in the Great Lakes region. And second, the crisis of citizenship and belonging. And really my intention in bringing them together wasn't to create a, a bigger problem, but to see how, um, by looking at them in one space, there might be a possibility to point the way towards possible solutions. So really, the central argument of the book is that issues of inclusion and exclusion animate or sustain cycles of violence and displacement. 
both in the Great Lakes region, but also beyond. I think a lot of the um, ideas in it have application beyond the region. So on the one hand, um, I argue that the likelihood of conflict increases when collective identities are mobilised, when they're politicised or, if you like, hardened by conflict entrepreneurs, which and this reduces the scope for overlapping or multiple identities that would have allowed for intergroup relations. But by the same logic, if you expand spaces for belonging, this becomes an important part of creating the conditions for sustainable peace. And so these um, spaces would be ones, for instance, in which multiple identities can exist, in which identities are seen as fluid, they're seen as changeable, and in which systems for marking out difference uh, carefully crafted so as not to create these hardened boundaries of insiders and outsiders. So I guess in, in, to summarise, it argues that citizenship and belonging are both the cause and at the same time part of a possible resolution to ongoing conflict and displacement in the region. And I, I really think, you know, that what the data really showed clearly was that forced displacement provides something of a litmus test for understanding these di dynamics at all stages in the trajectory of displacement. So issues of exclusion are often drive people into exile, for instance, groups that are discriminated against for their association with a particular identity, then once they're in exile, um, part of, they are often sort of continued, their exclusion often continues as a result of ongoing failures to create new spaces for belonging, and refugees are continually marginalised. And then many of the problems associated with enacting, if you like, durable solutions to displacement have uh, are, are very intimately connected with exclusion. And so as I sort of try to analyse this, I, I use two slightly different lenses, if you like, to understand the dynamics on the ground. On the one hand, um, the book uses a quite a strong policy lens that engages with the kind of primarily state-centric legal framework around forced displacement. But at the same time, I also used a socio-anthropological or ethnographic lens that tries to nuance and challenge a narrative that is driven by categorization. So my interest really was in trying to see the ways in which policy and the lived experience of exile interact with each other or more commonly fail to interact. Um, in order to try and make sense of why the international human rights framework, which does hold a lot of promise, but continually fails to deliver rights on the ground. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, spaces for refugee protection are continually shrinking, and the label refugee is a very important tool for targeting and maintaining protection of the rights of a very specific legal category of people, both during their exile and at the point of return. But on the other hand, you know, the realities on the ground that we found in our research make it very clear that refugees have multiple identities, they deploy multiple coping strategies, and they often de defy these neat categories. So my intention, or my conclusion, wasn't to claim that one or the other of the two is right, but to argue that both narratives need to listen to and interact with each other. So, as I said, it on the one hand, it has this clear engagement with legal categories, but on the other, it um, really points to the inadequacies of these categories and um, shows the, the need for far greater nuance and flexibility. And I think, you know, that the sort of basis for arguing that is the extent to which the findings reveal the, the many ways in which refugees create spaces for belonging in ways that often contradict or even subvert national and international policies. policies. And um, I think, you know, 
in conclusion, it points to the somewhat obvious fact that policy needs to be bottom up, bottom up rather than top down. And I know this is something that's long been recognised by practitioners and academics alike, but as our findings continually showed, it's, this has yet to infuse much programming on the ground. Mm. I was thinking, um, uh, actually, just as a bit of background here, when you've been um, some questions that came to mind, um, I think this region is uh, less familiar to a lot of people, in particular in terms of uh, these issues of citizenship and, and belonging. Uh, so could you just give... Um, um, you know a bit of background like how how um what is the extent of of displacement um you know, within this region and um in terms of citizenship policies and and policies uh, about inclusion and belonging are they very different in the countries that you studied or um do they um do you diverge uh, diverge or are they similar um so i think you know citizenship policies and this is this is one of the the things i'm trying to draw out is the sort of intersection between the sort of if you like on the one hand that in to answer your first question we're talking about a context in, of a of a post-colonial state or multiple post-colonial states if you like and so on in the context of that looking at the many problems in sort of state building in the aftermath of colonialism and while a lot of the laws that were inherited were um, inherited from the colonial powers, and there are a lot of similarities in that, and I don't get into a detailed discussion around that because it's done, been done very um, adequately, particularly by Bronwyn Manby in her um, in her work. But it's really looking at the extent to which there is a lot of ex exclusion built into this, even though a lot of the borders and the boundaries are relatively arbitrary and were have been um, instated relatively recently and by external colonial powers and looking at the extent to which those boundaries often make very very little sense on the ground and then you add on to that the fact that this is a region that has been very prone to conflict and as I say the conflict often driven by disputes over negotiations of who should belong in a particular state and so the whole kind of crafting of, of statehood in the aftermath of colonialism has been extremely troubled and continues to feed ongoing cycles and or be an ongoing driver, if you like, of, of causes of, of conflict, of people trying to figure out um, who has the right to belong, which is often intimately and normally intimately connected with who has the right to access particular resources, both in a specific locality and in a broader kind of national sense mm. and i guess that's what you mean as well um when you said that you know identities are being politicized um and and this is uh, part of um part of the problem with exclusion um is that what you meant or have you got any sort of example yeah no absolutely and i think what's one of the very interesting things that came out through the findings was a, a sort of very interesting interrelationship between national understandings of belonging and local understandings understandings of belonging so you have this sort of overt national narrative that sort of says you are an insider because you have nationality or you're not because you don't have nationality either because you because normally because you're a refugee in this case um whereas that narrative plays out very differently at the local level sometimes it's mirrored but often it's very different so what we, found, what we found continually is that refugees were often forging spaces for belonging at a local level that didn't actually reflect their, if you like, their national status. 
of course, that, that was often being unsettled by wider political events. So it was a very unstable form of belonging, if you like. Yeah. Have you got any, any examples of that? Yeah. Um, well, what, one of the really interesting examples is Burundian refugees who'd been living in Tanzania for up to uh, over three decades, having um, fled in the early 1970s and had been given quite sizable pieces of land um, when they first arrived um, with President Nyerere currently um, in power at that time, who had a very sort of pan-African vision of the continent and was very much welcomed the stranger in at that time. So these refugees had been living, over 200,000 of them by sort of 2008, had been living in... Um, a, you know, three settlements as well as um, outside of the settlements in Tanzania. And as things stay, were beginning to look increasingly stable in Burundi with a, a, the Arusha Peace Accord being signed, um, there was increasing talk of enacting so-called durable solutions for the, this population. And in an unprecedented step, the Tanzanian government offered naturalisation as an alternative to repatriation for those who should wish to take it, because normally repatriation is in practice the only durable solution on offer for the majority. And out of the over 200,000 refugees of that population, 162,000 approximately um, opted for naturalisation. And what was very interesting is that it then hit a lot of hurdles, this process of naturalisation, in, in terms of the sort of implementation of it, because the Tanzanian government then said that actually you can have your, you can be naturalised, but you have to relocate. And this unsettled the whole process because refugees or former refugees were saying, actually, yes, we would like to take the offer of Tanzanian citizenship, but if you relocate us elsewhere, then we won't be able to belong so easily in that area. We formed really good communities in the areas we're living. And having been relocated elsewhere, we would continue to be identified as former refugees and kind of as secondary citizens. So it became very embroiled in this very complex process. It has actually had a, a, a good outcome in the sense that the Tanzanian government then went back on that decision and has allowed that group to stay where they were. But for a while, they had renounced their Burundian citizenship. They hadn't yet got their certificates to prove their Tanzanian citizenship and were kind of left in a sort of legal limbo. Um, and so it was very interesting how a kind of policy-implemented process that was supposed to resolve their status at a national level if you like actually unsettled it and left them temporarily albeit temporarily in a um in a in a if you like in a, a less stable position in terms of their ability to belong both in the local area and in the national what sort of policies um would there need to be um would, would you need to have in place in order to um you know what you talk about to um, to create uh, or to allow these spaces of belonging um, amongst refugees. Um, yeah, I mean, I th I think two of the two of the policies I kind of um, talk about, particularly in the book, um, and these are it, it's it's in in a way these are national policies, but they are also ones that interact with the kind of broader humanitarian system that. Um, very much sort of works around or with or for the kind of refugee um, system. But um, the first is the policy of encampment. And the second, as I've, I've kind of alluded to, is the issue of repatriation um, being pushed as the kind of most favourable, durable solution to forced migration. 
And both both of these I see as being related to the issue of marginalisation and failures around integration because they're both, if you like, anti-integration by nature. So in the case of encampments, this is a key feature of the landscape in the Great Lakes region. Um, typically, people have been kept in isolated camps for up to decades, and this has been disastrous for many. It's as well as um, for the for the surrounding host community. You know, encampment is inefficient. It means that people have their lives kept on hold for years and years, and many of the situations of displacement in the region are what would be called protracted. And of course, when the money dries up for humanitarian assistance, people who are in an encamped situation with very limited land and very few alternative sources of income are left very vulnerable. And in this regard, the sort of, if you like, the positive is the fact that um, UNHCR has brought out an alternatives to camps policy, which on paper is is excellent and really works against this. In practice, it's obviously going to meet a huge amount of stumbling blocks, um, not least because it has to be implemented within a national framework and at a national level and with political space, if you like, constricting the thought of allowing refugees to have more free to more freely settle goes against that kind of political narrative but i think our findings make it clear that that's something not to be feared and it's you know it's very it's very interesting that a lot of the the myths around allowing refugees to integrate um it within the the country of of asylum actually are, are exactly that they're myths i could go into more detail if you if you want in a minute but then the other policy is this one of repatriation which is also deeply problematic and i you know there are a lot of political reasons that it's so much it's, it is so pushed as the sort of main durable solution on on offer but it does mean that local integration which in you know is often referred to as the forgotten solution but i would say it's actually not never forgotten it's actually just being evaded at all costs and um is something that we have to do far more to persuade governments that it's the only it's not only in the best interests of refugees to allow them to integrate um but also it can benefit the country and this was definitely the case with the burundian refugees in tanzania for instance they were exporting food around the country because not only were they feeding themselves they were you know they were creating a surplus and this is a country that is is poor and that that needs that to happen mm. it would be really interesting actually to hear um just a little bit um maybe some examples of this, uh, the myths and the benefits of integration. I was also just thinking, this is perhaps a a big question, a little bit uh, off topic, but um, it's really interesting this, what you're saying about the issues with encampment uh, relating to the European uh, uh, debate uh, on on refugee protection because it's often argued that uh, well the british um the british government uh, would argue that you know we would rather help refugees in the region uh, rather than um resettlement or or admitting asylum seekers um and i guess the counter argument uh, is that the the consequence then is perhaps uh, encampment within the region which is itself problematic i don't know to what extent this attitude of the of, of europe in particular um feeds into this problematic as well yeah if that's a really good question so just to go back to the sort of myths of yeah of uh, around integration i mean this is a really interesting one and um it's something i've engaged with for a long, a long time and did a lot of work trying to you know convince unhcr 
to produce this new alternatives to camps policy along with many others and i think um you know the sort of the myths are that um there's a sort of fear that somehow if refugees are allowed to integrate they're going to slowly worm their way into the kind of national situation and somehow take over and it's such a false example false assumption and it's not that that is wrong per se but i think you know for for our for one of the things that's really interesting has been to look at groups of refugees who've opted out of the settlement structure for instance in uganda um when the um, encampment policy was being implemented um, much more, it was being much more enforced than it is now, Self, so-called self-settled refugees who had gone outside of the camp structure, they weren't receiving any humanitarian assistance because they couldn't, because they had kind of fallen off this kind of legal definition of what a refugee is within the Ugandan context. And they were they had negotiated with the local government officials access to a small piece of land. They were farming it they were feeding their families they were sending their children to school and this was with absolutely no assistance from the international community and it was really interesting to see the contrast with people in the camps who have, had become very much dependent on this sort of enormous humanitarian machinery that might or might not have enough money to feed them this year and next and so the, and then the idea that there is i mean with so the sort of myth that refugees are economically better off in camps is obviously wrong on that basis there's also the fear that they're going to somehow bring com that they bring conflict with them, and if you allow them to integrate within local communities, they're going to make them more insecure. But actually, what we found is that where um, these so-called self um, self-settled refugees were um, living and operating within the local government structures, actually they weren't generating insecurity in any way because they'd become part of that local government structure that had security built into it. They were known and therefore their presence wasn't seen as a threat. And I think the other myth is that people who um, locally integrate in that way won't go home. And while that might be the case for some, I think you know one of the interesting things that um, I found was that in many refugee self-settled refugee compounds there were no graves and as one of the local researchers pointed out you know this makes it very clear that in this case these were Sudanese refugees living in Uganda they were taking their their dead back to bury in what is now South Sudan and I think that was a very clear indicator of where they saw their kind of home if you like and of course when South Sudan then became just about stable enough for people to return many did opt to to repatriate at that point so those are kind of some of the myths around it and but i think yes this i think what's interesting for me is that when i started out on my research discussions around migration generally were, were really quite minimal if you like it was very much a kind of um a sideshow and obviously things have changed considerably since then um so i think what's what's interesting is to see the extent to which discussions that are now really emerging in Europe have actually been going on for years in places such as the Great Lakes region. And in, at some level, they're well ahead of the game. Um, and I think, you know, it, in some ways, Europe could do well to look to countries and regions that have been grappling with some of these issues for decades, but not necessarily to take <laughs> on best practices. So, but it is in, it's, it's an interesting question. I think what, where, where I see a real similarity is this whole issue of, if you like, realpolitik around migration, um, which consistently, whether you're in Kampala, whether you're in Brussels or Washington or wherever you are, constantly seems to be intent on pushing people to the margins rather than pulling them in. And of course, as you say, this sort of idea in Europe 
to um, throw money to keep people from moving in the first place is is probably going to well I mean I'm sure it's going to be going to prove to be very palliative and not to really get to um, the heart of the, the very complex drivers around migration and also of course it doesn't grapple with the fact of what is so wrong with migration in the first place but I think of course in Africa as in Europe governments are constantly being driven by the the political need to keep people out and then if they do manage to get in they they have this imperative to sort of contain and ghettoize them so you know it might look like a very sort of structured structured encampment system say in Uganda but I think very similar sort of forms of of ghettoization, if you like, happen in Europe, obviously, as well. So, you know, on the one hand, politicians do all they can to restrict the movement of people. Um, but, of course, in practice, this is going to be almost impossible to achieve. And if it if it did become possible, it would be at an unbearable cost to those for whom really staying behind is, is really not a safe option in any way. So I think, you know, people obviously are going to move, but they'll do so without protection and below the official radar. Yeah. And just uh, lastly, um, slightly, slightly different topic, but um, uh, uh, there was a a big story last year about the Kenyan government wanting to to close the refugee camp uh, Dadaab. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. (laughs) But um, I was I just wanted to ask you, um, you know, what the developments are um, are in uh, there and whether this is going ahead and what the consequences might be. Yeah, no, this and this has been kind of brewing for a number of years yet um, now. And I think, you know, the closure of Dadaab is, it's a very interesting situation that brings together many of these issues. Um, and, you know, obviously, while my book is quite rightly critical of governance in the Great Lakes, I think, as I sort of hinted at before, the irony is that actually Western states are making governments such as Kenya and Uganda look really quite good in comparison. So, you know, I think the sort of announcement of the closure is it's obviously being driven by multiple factors and of course you have this whole issue around kind of host fatigue which is there but I think really I, I would sort of point to two things one is um, the securitization of understandings of the presence of refugees and in this case the association however false of Somali refugees with al-Shabaab has really given it's given oxygen to the Kenyan government's desire to close this enormous camp and of course, you know, we see a similar narrative playing out in Europe with mm. the association between migrants and Islamic State and all the rest of it. And I, But I do think that the other key factor was that the Kenyan government really was blowing apart the myth of burden sharing. So, you know, Kenya has been hosting hundreds of thousands of refugees for decades, albeit begrudgingly and often at the expense of refugees' quality of life. But, you know, for decades, most European governments have shown a shocking lack of willingness to take in any more than a token number of refugees. So I do think that the sort of things like the EU-Turkey deal and approaches that have been taken in Europe have made Kenya think, well, why why should we continue to do what you've sort of said to us? You've thrown money at us saying you need to do this. And yet actually now when the sort of, you know, when it arrives on your doorstep, if you like, you've shown a complete unwillingness. So it'll be very interesting to, to see how that plays out. But I think, you know, um, regardless of that kind of the sort of hypocrisy that this has revealed in the narrative around um, burden sharing, um, that, that what's obviously of deep concern is the impact on the thousands of individuals and families and communities 
who are now in a very even more vulnerable situation and I think you know it's very clear that any mass repatriation process is certainly not going to meet the standards of voluntary return and it is going to put people's lives on the line and it's it's deeply problematic so I think that there you know there's going to be a lot of work that's been done around it but I think this is going to happen I think people are going to slowly be or maybe quite fast you know are going to be returned to Somalia and it's deeply deeply problematic um, given that Somalia is not safe for people to return to so it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out but there's an enormous amount of work that will need to be done to try and um, you know make sure that there is some degree of protection built into into the process and I think you know this is one of the key themes that the book shows is that repatriation at the wrong time and in the wrong way might make it look like a short-term fix for the country certainly that was hosting the refugees but in reality it's not only dangerous for those who return but it all too often sets the stage for another round of displacement. To find out more about all our guests and to listen to previous episodes please visit our website talkingmigration.com. That was all for this time thank you very much for listening.